This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Good morning, church. I wanted to start our time this morning by asking you a question. How do you define greatness? Think about it. How do you define greatness? Most people might define greatness by worldly standards. This could be through achievements or success, like having a lot of money or having a prestigious job or title, having fancy things, having a big house with a happy family, or being talented or particularly skilled in something. All of these things add up to someone's greatness for most people. I know for me, growing up, greatness was all about being the best I could be in whatever given hobby I was wrapped up in at the time. If it was basketball season, I wanted to be great at basketball. If it was soccer season, I wanted to be great at soccer. It happened with skateboarding, video games, motorcycle riding, and it's still like that for me sometimes. And these aren't bad things. I don't want you to think that's what I'm saying. Having nice things or being good at your job or a hobby, they're not bad things. They're good gifts from God. But what I'm trying to get at is that I have encountered through the word of God a greatness that is far greater than any idea of greatness I've ever had in my entire life. And that is the greatness of God. A greatness that is so much better than anything we could ever achieve or become. Today I want to share with you guys what true greatness looks like and how it applies to our lives. And I don't want you guys to just hear it from me. I want you to see for yourselves what scripture says about God's greatness. So we're going to look at Psalm 145, and you guys can follow along with me in your Bibles, or you can follow along on the screens behind me as I read. Psalm 145 says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on the wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. 
The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Amen. This chapter of scripture is so amazing because it tells us so much about God's greatness. And honestly, it's a little overwhelming to read about so many of the characteristics of God together in one chapter like that. But through this chapter, it's clear that the greatness of God is unlike anyone else's greatness, which leads us to our first big picture truth, and that is that God is infinitely great. God is infinitely great. We see that in so many different ways in this passage, and I want to help us see some of God's characteristics that make him infinitely great. Now, honestly, each one of these characteristics that we're going to talk about deserves its own sermon. But for today, I want us to just get a glimpse, a picture of these attributes so we can have a fuller understanding of how truly great God is. And the first thing that we see in this passage about God's infinite greatness is that he is indescribable. He is indescribable. We see that in verse 3. Look with me. It says, his greatness is unsearchable. It's the year 2020, right? And today, according to experts, between 80 and 95% of the ocean remains unexplored. How is that possible? Like, that doesn't make sense to me. With all the technology that we have nowadays, you would think that number would be a lot lower, or at least I would. And think about the vastness of the universe. Through technology, we've been able to explore so many different planets and stars and even galaxies. But the truth is is that we have no idea how far the universe extends. We have no idea how many galaxies there are or how many planets or stars there are. Even the experts are left to speculate about these things and estimate. God's greatness is a lot like the depths of the ocean or the vastness of the universe. We can see so many beautiful and insightful things about them, but the extent of the full picture is unsearchable. No matter how much we study and read and pray and seek God in our lifetimes, God's greatness is unsearchable. He is indescribable. Next, we see that he is powerful. He is powerful. We see that in verse 4. It says that the generations shall declare your mighty acts. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, then I'm sure you've heard of some of the mighty acts that the psalmist could be referring to, right? God delivering his people from Egypt, parting the Red Sea, raining manna from heaven. These are all actual acts that God himself has done, and the list could go on and on. And think about creation. God created everything that exists, and nothing exists outside of his creation. He created the universe, he created our planet, 
He created the animals. He created the resources that we have. He created you, and he created me. And he knows the number of hairs on our head. That's amazing. He's so calculated and precise. There were no accidents. There were no mistakes in his creation. And he created from nothing. Humans can't do that. If you remember anything about high school chemistry, then you might remember that the law of conservation of mass teaches that matter cannot be created or destroyed, only transferred or removed. We can't even create one little ounce of matter, and God created everything that exists in seven days. Do you see how mighty God is? Do you see how powerful he is? Do you see that there is nothing impossible or too hard for God? I hope so. Next, we see that he is good. He is good. We see that in verse 7. It says, they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. Now, I don't know about you guys, but for me, whenever I hear the word good used to describe God, it seems kind of vague. I mean, we use that word so often to describe so many things, like, wow, that food was so good, or man, that movie was really good, or he or she is so nice, they're such a good person. But when we say God is good, it should mean something so deep to us. He is good in every essence of the word. He is the epitome of goodness, and he shares his goodness with us. He is good to us, and he is good for us. One way that I like to think about it is that God is my treasure. He is the most valuable thing to me and the thing that my heart desires and delights in most. God is infinitely good. Next, we see that he is patient. He is patient. We see that in verse 8. It says, he is slow to anger. We see that he's patient. We are such and impatient people, aren't we? We live in a generation where we need instant gratification in everything. We need to be able to have what we want, when we want it, and if we don't, we get upset. It's just the way it is. Think of how spoiled we are here in America. We can go on our smartphones, which everyone has, by the way, and search for any information in the world and have it in seconds. You just go on Google and type what's on your mind. Google has changed our world, so much so that we even made a verb out of it, right? Just Google it. Since when was Google a verb? Come on, can we just talk about that for a second? Since when was Google a verb? I mean, apparently it is now. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a high school Spanish teacher for those of you who didn't know, so grammar is kind of a big deal for me. And I know some of you guys are probably thinking, oh, he's such a nerd. Yeah, whatever, whatever is what it is. But it's true. We can have anything we want almost instantly. And think about Amazon. Now, I don't even have to get too in-depth for you to know where I'm going with this one. Over the years, Amazon has become one of the most popular and successful businesses in the world. And how have they done this? By feeding into our impatience. We thought free two-day shipping was good, but now they have free one-day shipping and even same-day shipping. It's incredible. I can order something and it does not take long at all before it's at my doorstep. <laughs> Watch. Next year, they're going to have 
30-minute shipping, and by then, every Amazon employee will have a master key to everyone's house so they can drop the package off in your living room so you don't have to walk outside to go get it. Am I right? <laughs> it's what we want. We are so impatient. And then I think about how patient God is. And it makes me embarrassed at the fact that I get upset if my internet's being slow or if my food is 10 minutes late or if my package arrives a day late. I think one of the greatest examples of God's patience is the fact that you and I are here today. And I'm talking big picture on this one. The fact that you and I are here today proves that God is patient towards all humanity. He is slow to anger with his creation. He could have been done with us and given up on us a long time ago. He could have ended the world with the flood back in the time of Noah, but he didn't. The Bible says in 2 Peter 3 that we should count the patience of our Lord as salvation. This means that God still cares about us and that he is slow to anger with us and he has not given up on us, even when we fail him time and time again. He is patient. This leads us perfectly to our next truth, which is that he is merciful. He is merciful. We see this in verses 8 and 9, which say, The Lord is gracious and merciful, and his mercy is over all that he has made. It's really hard to have compassion or forgiveness towards someone else when they wrong you. It's not easy. When someone hurts you, our natural tendency is to shut them out or to want revenge. But we know that as Christians, we should forgive and have compassion like God. And so we strive for that. But what about when the person who wrongs you doesn't deserve your forgiveness? Doesn't that make it so much harder? That's what true mercy is. True mercy is not giving someone the punishment that they actually deserve. That's what God does with us, but it still doesn't make it easy on us. Isn't it so hard to forgive someone when they talk poorly about you behind your back? Isn't it so hard to forgive someone when they take advantage of you, whether it be that they steal from you or manipulate you or use you? or whether someone isn't grateful for the hospitality you've shown them or the time you spent helping them out when they needed it? Isn't it really hard to forgive someone when you needed them the most and you were counting on them and they didn't come through? It is really hard. And I don't pretend to have an easy fix for any of these scenarios, but what I can do is point us to the amazing mercy of God through the scriptures. We saw in verse 9 that his mercy is over all his creation, and this could not be more true. God causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. Does he not? He is merciful towards all, but most importantly, the Son of God became man to bear God's wrath towards sin. He did this on our behalf so that we might have eternal life through the Son. He died for the just and the unjust to offer every single human being in all of existence forgiveness through his blood if they believe in him. 
even when none of us deserved it. God's mercy is unlike our mercy. His mercy is incredible. Next, we see that he is timeless. He is timeless. We see this in verse 13. It says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. One of the hardest yet simplest truths about God to understand is that he has no beginning and no end. That's something that Christians are taught very early on in their walks of faith. We hear it, and it's simple. He has no beginning, and he has no end. But when we actually start to think about this complex truth, our minds start to spin, and we either confuse ourselves further, or we admit that we're never going to be able to understand what things were like before creation, or what eternity will look like. But if we notice, the text doesn't just mention his existence being timeless, but also his dominion. Think about how amazing that is. God is the sovereign ruler and creator of all things, and he has been forever. In all of the history of existence, no one has been able to overthrow him or to overpower him. His reign is eternal. No powerful man or nation will ever step outside or beyond the reign of God. No demons or spirits have ever or will ever take his throne and command the worship of legions of angels. God is timeless, and his dominion is timeless. Next, we see that he sustains. He sustains. We see that in verse 14. It says, The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. There are so many circumstances in life that just bring us down. It can't just be me who stresses out over my job or school or when we just have a lot going on. Whatever it may be, life can beat us up. You might have gone through a very painful loss of a loved one or you may have been let go from your job and you just don't know how you're going to pay your bills. You may be struggling with sin or you may be questioning things altogether. But somehow, we're all still here. Somehow, we've made it and we're going to continue by God's grace to make it. We can't explain this other than that God sustains us when we are falling. He helps us get back up. I think of a father or mother helping their newborn baby learn how to walk. They take the child by the hands and they guide them. But if they were to let go, the child would undoubtedly fall. That's what God does with us. He takes us by the hand and sustains us so that we don't fall. But not only does God sustain us in our weaknesses, he also sustains all creation. We see that in verse 15. It says, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. There is so much going on in the world. Right now, there's a woman excited and perhaps nervous because she's about to give birth to her first child. Right now, there's a farmer rejoicing because there is rain for the first time in a long time for his crops. Right now, there's a little baby lion waiting for his mother to come home with food and to teach him how to hunt on his own. 
right now. The earth is in orbit at a perfect distance from the sun so that we're not scorched or frozen to death. And in all these things, God is intimately aware of all the details and circumstances of every scenario. God is not a passive God. He is active. The eyes of all creation look to God, and God sustains all of his creation. Next, we see that he satisfies. He satisfies. We see this in verse 16. It says, God satisfies the desire of every living thing. It's like after you go for a five-mile run on a really hot day, and by the end of the run, you are exhausted, man. You are just tired. You're dying. And all you can think about is getting home, reaching into your fridge, and grabbing an ice-cold cup of water. And when you drink the water, man, you are so satisfied. You wanted nothing more than that drink in that moment. You are so satisfied. But you'll be thirsty again, probably just after an hour or two. And then again, and you'll be unsatisfied. God fully satisfies. It's like Blaise Pascal said, in the heart of every man is a God-shaped vacuum that cannot be filled with anything other than God himself. No matter how we fulfill our desires, we will always be unsatisfied. Just look at your life for a moment. There's always something new that you want. There's always something better that you could have. And you might say, well, if only I just had a little bit more money, or if only I just had a different or a better job, or if only I were married. But the truth is that in all of these scenarios, we'd still be unsatisfied. And if you won't take it from me, listen to the stories of some of the most wealthy and successful people in the world. So many of them will admit to the fact that they are not satisfied with what they have or that they're not happy with their lives. The truth is, we often look for satisfaction in the wrong places. And I'll have to be honest, I'm definitely guilty of this from time to time. If I'm not careful, I can have a tendency to get too wrapped up in my circumstances and think that I would be satisfied if I just had whatever I was looking for in the moment. Nothing in this world will truly satisfy us, but God fully satisfies the desire of every living thing. And lastly, we see that he is just. He is just. We see this in verse 17. It says, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his work. The truth is, there is no wrong or right outside of God. God has defined right and wrong and has written it on our hearts. Without God, there would be no standard to measure to. And you might be thinking, well, that's not fair. How can someone choose what's right and what's wrong for everyone? And if that's you this morning, my answer to you would be, who else would you propose decide right and wrong? I definitely would not want to be the one to decide right and wrong because on any given day, I'm prone to selfishness, deceit, and envy, just like everyone else. We can be at peace knowing that God's ways are perfect. 
aren't we so thankful that God is just? In everything he does, whether it's in giving or taking away, he is fair, he is loving, he is kind, and he is just. So we've seen that God is indescribable. We've seen that he is powerful. We have seen that he is good, patient, merciful, timeless, and we've seen that he sustains and that he satisfies, and we've seen that he is just. All of this pointing to the fact that God is infinitely great. Now, after seeing all of this and hearing all of this, all of these characteristics, you might still be tempted to say, well, God sounds great and all, but I know some people who are pretty patient and merciful. And they're fair and just, and I would consider them great people. And if that's you, then I have to be honest. And I say this in a loving way. You're misunderstanding the purpose of the text. We are using human words to describe an indescribable God. Do you see that? All of these points that we just made and talked about are understatements. They're not fully accurate. There are no words that we have that can truly capture God's infinite greatness. Now, on the other side, there might be some people who are listening to this and they either believe what they've encountered in the scriptures today or are at least curious or intrigued by it. But wherever you stand today, don't miss this next truth. If you've zoned out or if I've bored you to sleep, now might be a good time to start listening again because this is where scriptures meet you in your everyday life. The second big picture truth that I want you guys to see about true greatness is that God's greatness demands a response. God's greatness demands a response. Now, there are many appropriate ways to respond to this great news, but I want us to look at at least three ways in which all of us should be responding to this. First, we should praise. We should praise. We see examples of this in verses 1 through 3 and in verse 21. They say, I will extol you and bless your name forever. And great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Do we see that? We should be so filled with praise that we bless his name forever. This should be a natural response. Our hearts should be so overwhelmed at the glory of his greatness that we should naturally respond in praise and adoration. It's amazing that we get to do this together as a congregation regularly, but we should also do it individually. As we go about our days, we should praise God for his greatness and his creation and the fact that we have life. We should praise a second way in which we should respond is we should ponder. We should ponder. We see this in verse 5. It says, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Do you see how this is an intentional response? This verse is not saying that we should simply think about God and his greatness. It's saying that we should intentionally meditate and ponder the greatness of God. This takes intentionality. Take a moment and picture God in your head. What do you see? Well, 
regardless of how great whatever your imagination led you to see, it falls short of the true glory of God. We tend to view God as less than he is. And I think that one of the main reasons for that is that we as a people don't do a very good job of pondering the greatness of God. What this does is it leads to a lack of faith, and we begin to doubt in the greatness of God. And we ask ourselves, can God really save me? Can God really get me out of this tough situation that I'm in? We need to meditate. A very practical way that I've been doing this for a while now is that I've made a list on my phone that I look at first thing every morning. And for each different day of the week, I have several characteristics of God that I want to meditate on throughout the day. So for example, today is Sunday. So as soon as I woke up this morning, I opened up that list on my phone, and it reminded me that God is infinite. He is immortal. He has no beginning or end. He is self-sufficient, and he needs no one. So I read that list as soon as I wake up, and I just ponder for a moment. And then as I go about my day, getting ready for work, or on the drive over, whatever I have going on for the day, I'm intentionally thinking about how God is these things. Now, I'm not saying you have to use my exact method, although I found it to be very beneficial for me. But what's important is that we all, in our own way, intentionally ponder the greatness of God. And lastly, a third way in which we should respond is we should proclaim. We should proclaim. We see this all throughout the psalm. It says, one generation shall commend your works to another, and I will declare your greatness and make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. This isn't just for preachers or missionaries. Every moment is an opportunity to proclaim the greatness of God for everyone. We should do this with our lives in the way that we live, in the way that we act, in the way that we think. And we should also do this with our words. And when proclaiming the greatness of God, we need to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus is the best proclamation of God's greatness. And it's the best news that anyone could ever hear. We should proclaim the fact that Jesus lived the perfect life you and I were supposed to live and died the punishing death that you and I deserved. We should proclaim that he rose from the grave and is now seated at the right hand of the Father in all splendor and glory interceding for us. And we should proclaim that he is coming back for his people. This response should be out of love and awe at God's greatness. And it should also be out of obedience because God commands it. But I also want us to see that it should be out of love for others too. Verse 20 says that God will destroy all of the wicked. Guys, there is legitimate punishment for not responding to the greatness of God. This should scare us. God says that he will destroy all of the wicked. We should proclaim the greatness of God out of love and obedience, but also for the sake of others. I don't want anyone to live their lives without knowing God. We should want everyone to know God. 
we should proclaim his greatness. So we've seen that God is infinitely great and that his greatness demands a response. And we've seen that a few ways in which we should respond is that we should praise, we should ponder, and we should proclaim. Now, as we close our time today, I wanted to end by asking the same question that I did in the beginning. How do you define greatness? I hope that after our time today together, you were able to see in the scriptures that God's greatness is unlike any greatness we could ever know. God's greatness is true greatness. I also hope that you would take time to intentionally respond today. As our service continues, and as we sing praises to the almighty God, I pray that God's word would be having an effect in you and that you would allow it to change you. But regardless of what it looks like, let's all respond to the greatness of God today. Let's pray. God, you are a holy God. There is no one like you, and there will never be anyone like you. We've seen so many truths about your greatness in your word today. God, I pray that we all would have a bigger view of you and that we would let the scriptures teach us what true greatness is. I pray that we would let your word inform us on who you are. And I pray that we would see that you are so worthy of our praise in our lives. I pray that no matter where we find ourselves today, we would be amazed at your greatness and that this would cause us to respond. God, have your way in our lives and be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.